Hello and welcome to Lost in Citations. In today's episode, we interview four contributors from the recent academic book, Foreign Female English Teachers in Japanese Education, Narratives from Our Quarter. In the book, 22 female educators based in Japan discuss their stories working in the Japanese higher education system. We begin with an interview with a senior editor for the book, Dr. Melody Cook from the University of Niigata Prefecture in Japan. So, Dr. Cook, welcome to Lost in Citations. Thank you, Todd. So, can you tell us a little bit about the book, how it came about, and how you got all of these authors together? I think there's 31, if I'm yeah. not mistaken. That's um, a lot. How did you get all the authors to 22. collaborate? <laughs> oh, 22. Okay. 22. How, did you get, how did you get all the authors to collaborate and yeah. what the process was like? Okay. So, um, Diane Holly Nagatomo and I were working together on a chapter uh, for the new handbook for college teachers at Japanese universities. And Diane had a data set from male and female uh, university teachers. And we were looking at some issues with um, getting hired and treatment at work and work-life balance. And we found some very stark differences between male and female teachers. So um, after we wrote the chapter, we thought, you know, there might be a book here. Uh, so we um, got together with uh, Kathleen Brown and the three of us uh, discussed it and talked about, you know, some possible authors that we thought would be good. And um, then we just, I guess, started asking people to contribute to the book. Um, so uh, I had, uh, I think I'd recommended um, Cynthia Smith, because I knew she was um university educator who was a, a lesbian and she had come and talked to my students a few times so I thought she would be a good person and then we like that we were just kind of brainstorming uh people who we thought could contribute something and and I think Diane primarily was um asking people to write for this book Oh, that's interesting so mm -hmm. the book has many authors you said 22 yes so is there a common theme? Obviously, it's it's the experiences of female teachers. Yes. What's, was it common or, or was it more eclectic, really? It was pretty eclectic. Um, I think we didn't really know what we were going to get. Once the chapters came in, then we started trying to organize them into themes. But that was kind of hard to do in a way because so many things were overlapping. And a lot some of the things that women were talking about um, are not exclusive to female teachers, but affect female teachers in a different way. So if we're talking about, um, you know, entry level to getting jobs, um, if it's a, if the university has more male faculty, they may be more inclined to hire more male faculty. Mm. So this is a this is a difference. So sometimes getting your foot in the door is harder. Um, and even before that, if uh, if you're a young woman and you want to have a family, you might postpone 
getting your degree. Um, and that kind of puts you behind a little bit. Or if you take time off to raise a family, if you leave your job and take time off to raise a family, um, then you're, you are not as competitive perhaps as your male colleagues who may be married to Japanese women and have a lot of free time, uh, not free time, but uh, have more time to devote to their work. They may not be, um, they may feel freer not to take on so many burdens at home, but a foreign female, uh, a, a woman who is a mother and a teacher is going to always, well, not always, but a lot. <laughs> we had a lot of reports of, of feeling conflicted about, mm. uh, you know, am I putting enough time into my work? Am I giving enough time to my family? So there is a more of difficulty for women. So difficulty in getting the job in the first place. Um, I know from some previous work I did that fewer women are involved in writing um, academic papers. And that's another way to enter university. Uh, you have to have some publications. And again, this uh, idea of not having enough time, having enough time to teach your classes and then run home and feed your family. <laughs> you know, and take care of the house and so on. So women are often doing double duty. So that's a little bit harder for them. They may not be able to stay for late night meetings. They may not be able to go drinking uh, with colleagues after work where a lot of decisions are made, you know, in the bar, maybe not now with COVID, but they, women are a little bit out of the loop uh, when it comes to that. Oh, yeah. I see. And so you got all these women uh, mm -hmm. these fantastic authors and teachers together. Um, that's such an accomplishment, but that must have been very difficult. I mean, handling 22 different authors for the it same was. project. It was. Um, things took longer than we expected, but life happens. And, uh, you know, everybody's busy. Uh, all of the teachers are working in universities. So, they all have busy schedules. Um, uh, I had a parent pass away during this project and I had to bow out a little bit for a while. And Kathleen as well um, had some issue, fa family health issues in her home country. And, you know, she, she had to uh, bow out a little bit. And then the authors themselves are at different stages of their careers. Some of them are... Uh, new to academic writing. Um, they're working maybe at their first university job. They don't have a lot of publications, so they needed a little more guiding through the process. So everybody was at a different level, a different place in their career. And so, yeah, it was, a, it was you know, a little bit like herding cats, <laughs> but, but they were nice cats and different, a variety of different species of cats and, um, you know, uh, different breeds, I should say. Um, and we managed to get it together, you oh, know, that's, in the end. That's fantastic. Yeah. yeah. Um, so about the book, though, um, so, you know, you get all these authors, uh, you know, they all, they all contribute. Um, how, how did it feel when it was all done? Like, you know, when it was, when it was you finally... a big relief. It was a big relief. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but it was it was so amazing. Um, I did a lot, a lot of the copy editing um, near the end. And 
seeing the chapters come together after all the hard work that was put into them. And it was just, it was really a pleasure to see um, how far the writers had come in organizing their ideas and all the different kinds of stories. And all, and as I said, a lot of the themes are overlapping. Mm. So we have women who are their mothers. Uh, they might be um, mothers, uh, uh, teachers, or, or people of color at, as well. Um, they might be um, uh, gay. So there's so many different layers to each person. So each person's story is multi-layered. Yeah, and I, I like how it's anecdotal. You know, the, the women, they tell their stories, which is quite interesting because as you said, you approached it as an academic writing. So, you know, this podcast is called Lost in Citations. And all of the stories have academic citations. They all yes. have the foundations of an academic writing. They do. It's very rare that you see that. Can you talk yes. a little bit about that combination of the narrative form plus the academic form? Yes, yes. So that's the, I mean, it, it is an academic publication. So we had to have some degree of rigor. Um we we didn't want just people telling their stories with no kind of framework. So that was an important part of the process. Um, yes. Well, so if somebody wants to do this, if somebody is ambitious like yourself and they want to have multiple authors contribute mm. to a book, what are your recommendations as an editor, somebody who's, who's done it? Um, it's doable. I think it's really important to have a very, as clear an idea of what you want as possible. And I think it's important to put out a call. Um, I think, you know, some, some authors needed more leveraging than others. I think it's a good idea in advance. And I'm, you know, hindsight is 2020. Um, putting out a call and, and looking at what authors have written before mm. to, to see, to gauge the level so that you have an idea in advance of how much work will have to be put in. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm not saying we had bad writers. I'm saying we had um, people who came from different disciplines. So maybe we should have had more structure in what we were looking for. Although at the same time, we wanted the authors to be free to write, you know, in their own way, using their own words and express themselves and tell their stories, tell their own stories. So it was kind of a juggling act in a way because... Um, well, okay, for me, I tend to have a more of a, like a traditional academic bent. And I would be, when I'm doing my editing, um, I might want to change somebody's phrasing to make it more precise. And then the other editors might say, well, no, this is, if you say it this way, it's not her voice any longer. And so let's put it back to the original. So that was that was you know um a constant negotiation yeah i would imagine it would be different for all the 
the writers, you know, like with students, you have some students that you have to hold their hand, you know, pat them on the back, give them lots of affection. Other people, you kind of have to hold their feet to the fire, crack the whip, so to speak. Was it the same it's way? Like that, I think with, with academic writers as well. I think, um, I mean, I'm a seasoned academic writer, but I'm as insecure about anything I send out as anyone, because I, you know, it's a risk and we're always afraid of reviewer two, um, the famous reviewer two, who's going to be really critical. So I think if you're, um, if you, if you haven't done a whole lot of academic writing, then you'll need more. I don't want to call it hand-holding, but more advice, uh, more guidance, perhaps, than someone who has done a lot of it. Yeah. 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 Well, thank you for your time. The book um, is very well written. I've read many of the chapters myself, and I look forward to reading the rest of the book. And I thank you for your contribution. Well, thank you. That was Dr. Melody Cook discussing her experience as an editor in the project. Next, we have Luis Ohashi. She is a professor at Meiji University in Tokyo. She talks about her experience as a teacher and leader in JALT, the Japanese Association of Language Teachers, an international community that holds local, national, and international conferences regularly. I am here with Luis Ohashi. Welcome to Lost in Citations. Hi, thanks a lot for having me today, Todd. Oh, thanks for coming in. So today we are talking about your book, Foreign Female English Teachers in Japanese Higher Education, Narratives from Our Quarter, which is a collection of various writers. Can you talk a little bit about your contribution and why you chose to write about what you did? Sure. Uh, Mine is about volunteering in JALT, the Japan Association for Language Teaching. And I was approached by the editors um, to write about this topic. And uh, what I wanted to do through it was look at how I had gone from being quite an outsider in the organization um, to somebody who was very involved. Uh, what made you decide to change? Like what, what happened in your life where you decided you wanted to take on this role, which is unpaid, by the way? Well, I've always been a, a very social person and I like to get involved in things. Um, But my first experience of going to JELT International Conference back in 2011 was uh, one where I really couldn't find my feet. Uh, Part of the chapter looks at how I had multiple roles in my life for many years as an English teacher, a researcher, doctoral candidate, mother, as well as volunteer. And when I first came across JELT, I only read the journals and the, I I was really a paper member (laughs) and I I eventually went to one of the conferences, but I couldn't really find a way to interact with people or I I didn't really see it as a networking opportunity because it was so huge. There were so many people there. There was so much going on. Um, But I did start going to other conferences and in the chapter, I talk about four people who helped me get involved little by little through various steps. Um, with JELT and with volunteer work. And it was partly through them and it was partly through some positive experiences I had when I went to my first JELT call conference that I started volunteering. So I guess the question would be, how would you balance the time? I think for something that's, that's volunteer and as a parent, and you were also getting a a PhD, if I believe correctly, how do you balance all your, your time to do this? 
Yeah, well, I was, yeah, it, it was particularly busy when I still had the PhD studies in the picture. Um, I, I finished that in um, 2019, so that chapter's closed finally. Uh, but I think the reason I was able to and wanted to find time for it is because I think that um, it's important for teachers not only to teach, but also to be involved in professional development. And this is a real opportunity um, to meet people who I can learn from and provide opportunities that others can learn from. So um, as an educator, that's something that I'm drawn to. Oh, that's fantastic. So can you talk a little bit about uh, your experiences or what you wrote about in the book in particular? Well, I looked at my own journey um, from the periphery to a more central um, kind of position within JELT. I'm JELT's 20, JELT 2020's conference co-chair this year, and I spent a couple of years on JELT's board of directors, and I've been publicity officer, program chair, member at large for JELT Call for a number of years. Um, so I looked a little bit at those positions um, in the chapter, uh, and Part of my focus was on wanting to encourage more women to become involved. Back when I wrote the chapter in 2018, uh, there were something like three female officers in JELT out of 18, in JELT Cole, sorry, out of 18, um, which is quite small. And there was around 20% of the JELT Cole membership that was female. Uh, and I think it was more like 40, 60 um, female male for JELT in general. So I really wanted to get more women involved. And I discuss this a lot with the JELT call officers. And uh, at the end, there's a postscript to the chapter saying that we were successful in getting more females involved uh, in JELT call. So I'm happy to say that we've been making progress with that, but it was something that was a very targeted thing. Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah. So if somebody's starting out their career, they're just beginning, what What's the case for them getting involved for volunteering in professional development? Because a lot of people might think, well, you know what? I need to focus on, on getting my advanced degree or on earning money. Uh, I don't really have time to, to do this unpaid work. What would you say to them? I'd say that you don't have to make a heavy time commitment. There are a lot of positions within JELT that you can do that don't require a huge time commitment and you can job share some of the roles. Um, if you joined a SIG as a member at large, it means that you just help other officers with tasks that they need to do or tasks that don't have a particular officer responsible for them. And that can be quite a, a small role. Um, and you may have all of these other things going on in your life, like your studies and your family um, and your, your work commitments. But in some way, I found that um, being involved with JELT has given me access to um, a community and I mean not only a community of people that I can learn from, but a community, a community of people who support me. And that helped me in other areas of my life. I found other mums who were struggling sometimes with finding childcare um, and dealing with various, you know, kids' school-related issues at the same time that I was while I was trying to sort out their own careers. And um, I found other people who were doing their PhDs. And we've been able to... <laughs> have a, you know, a bit of a whinge together sometimes, um, send each other encouraging messages other times. So uh, it's, a, it's a great source of support for me. And I think it is for a lot of other people I've spoken with too. 
I, I totally agree. I, I've been involved in uh, different networks or communities, and I think you need that support group. And also um, just people that will inspire you and work as a catalyst to really you know, push you forward. Because if people aren't within your, in your profession, I think it's kind of hard to, to get motivation sometimes. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And when you, when you volunteer, you have a voice in shaping the organization you belong to. And if you want something to change, use your voice to make it change. Right, right. Uh, so moving on to the future, what, what, are you, what are you working on now? At some point, I need to go back to my um, doctoral research and publish it. <laughs> this year, with all of the things that have been going on with COVID, um, I've turned my attention to um, moving everything online, just supporting others who are doing that because I have a Colmore background and a, a lot of my colleagues, not just in my workplaces, but you know, within my community as an educator, uh, don't have that background. So I know it's been a very steep learning curve for some and I've wanted to play a role in helping to make that curve more manageable. <laughs> uh, so yeah, this year um, I've been doing a lot of workshops or um things that are more practical rather than research per se. Um, but I will get back into my research in the, in the year ahead, I suppose. Can you talk a little bit about your doctoral research? What's your, your focus? I looked at how teachers can support uh, language learners within formal education um, in ways that will help them to become more autonomous outside of class so that they can manage their own learning. Because I feel that this is, something that is going to benefit students long-term, giving them the skills to manage their learning rather than just giving them some, um, some ways that they increase their skills short-term during a class. Oh, that's, that's great. Can you give us some examples of your findings? Well, I was also looking at how the use of digital technology could be used for this. And some of the things that I found was that um, students um, don't always know how to manage their learning by themselves. They haven't really looked at how to do that or been taught how to do that themselves generally. And this year is quite different um, because of the pandemic, but students had not at the time I did my study uh, used web-based materials in English for the most part, about a quarter had ever used them, which means, you know, about oh, wow. three quarters had never done anything in English online by the time they got to university. And this was, this uh, research was conducted at a university in Tokyo. Um, so obviously not all the students were from there, but a lot were. And uh, I guess that the, um, the role of teachers when they have students that get to universities to open their eyes to the world of resources that is out there that they have at their fingertips that they have in their pockets <laughs> and help them to find the kinds of resources that they can use to focus on their own individual goals leading students to question their own individual goals and um, find tasks that they can use that they are interested in using that they benefit in using um, that will help them to address those goals is an important thing that teachers can do. Yeah, that's so important. That's really nice that you're, you're focusing on that. I, I totally agree. You know, it's the whole teach a person to fish, right. Versus right. then give a person to fish. Yeah, exactly. And, um, 
Yeah, once you light that spark, it's amazing what the, what the students can do. Yeah, well, I mean, part of the research I'm doing now, it's kind of an ongoing project, is for the last uh, three years, I've been learning Italian, and I've been doing that as um, an autonomous learner, and I've been using um, pretty much web-based tools for that, and I've been documenting what I do uh, throughout a good part of that period, and so I... Want to know, I want to know more from the experience of a learner what it's like to do this. <laughs> and uh, and I, I started doing um, a collaborative autoethnography with a colleague in New Zealand. Um, and she is a German speaker who's been learning Spanish autonomously, mainly online too. And so we turned the research lens on each other and ourselves in our Euricall presentation this year to see how our own experiences as language learners is affecting us as researchers and as educators and what impact it has on our uh, teacher cognition and our teaching practices. And I'm very interested in finding out more about how other educators are um, faring in this kind of situation as well, because I think we can learn a lot from, uh, from ourselves and each other. Oh, that's so true. You know, I was just thinking the other day, it's so valuable to always put yourself in, in the shoes of the student because right. one of the easiest things is just time. You know, you realize how much time students need to process. So when the students are silent or it might take them a while, <laughs> it's so easy for the teacher to be a little bit impatient, right. but then you realize, no, they're, they're, they're working, they're processing, but yeah. they're just, they just need more time. Yeah. Yeah, and through JELT, I've been able to find a lot of sessions in the areas that I'm interested in. And uh, anyone who is interested in um, basically anything related to language education should get themselves to JELT 2020 uh, because we have uh, about 550 sessions in store uh, next month on 42 interest areas. And uh, I think that there'll be uh, something that can be educational or of interest for pretty much everybody who'd like to go <laughs> well thanks so much for that i got the schedule today i'm presenting myself i saw that i'm very excited to see when i go and great. i look forward to seeing you there yeah great well i i can't wait thanks so much Bye. and i just want to say also thank you so much for all of your contributions to jolt you do so much and uh it's it's very much appreciated oh thank you <laughs> thanks for saying so all right take care that was Luis Ohashi of Meiji University. In the following interview, we talk with Eukarya Donnery from the Shonan Institute of Technology. She talks about helping women break barriers in the tech world and using her background in the humanities to help students studying IT. Hello, Eukarya. Welcome to Lost in Citations. Hello, Todd. Thank you for inviting me here. Oh, it's a pleasure to have you. So we're talking about your contribution to the book, Foreign Female English Teachers in Japanese Higher Education. Can you talk about your contribution and why you decided to write what you wrote and, and the backstory behind it? Okay, well, um, my contribution is called Finding My Tribe. Um, and it's about me moving from the the land of 
kind of the humanities in Japan to the land of science. So I changed from working in, in humanity-based universities and being an English teacher to uh, a science university. Um, it's a technical institute of technology and I work in the Department of Applied Computer Sciences. Oh, that's interesting. So you're, you're saying that your, your art background actually helped you get the job. Yes. Um, so in our universities, there's the Department of Applied Computer Sciences and the Department of Information Technology. Now, parents during open campus ask us, why do you have two departments that are fundamentally the same? And I'm like, well, that's where there is a difference. Um, the Department of IT is information technology, whereas we are ICT, um, information communication technology. So communication is person to person, person to uh, technology, and then technology to technology in, in the form of network and like deprogramming, coding, and so on. Um, so my my area of speciality is um, obviously person to person and person to computer. So um, some computer assisted language learning, um, but mostly drama. Um, and my students, um, they come in and they tend to be very, very quiet and very nervous. And I have a lot of people who come into my seminar classes who, who say they're very shy and very quiet and they have difficulty difficulties in making friends but um you know once the pressure is released um and there is you, people aren't forced to do things they actually blossom so anyway um of course because it's a department it's a an institute of technology it is a male dominated environment however uh, i i have found in my time there that the men are are ally, allies in uh, gender. So there's absolutely zero tolerance for um, sexism. That's just not allowed. Um, our female students in our department in particular, they get headhunted straight away. We are also responsible for getting our students jobs, but our female students, the companies understand these female students are have been a minority and they are strong and they've had to work twice as hard as the boys. So they are extremely popular when it comes to the job hunting market um, and the job recruitment market. Um, so the problem when it comes to gender, the women are actually starting off at, a, at an advantage to the men when it comes to IT. But the problem is when women leave the job market to go um, to have children, um, have a family and then come back to the job market then they start at basic salary again so um in the year 20 sorry 2019 um the the sorry they were in the top four or five uh, worst gender gap in when it came to salary in japan uh, the in industry of IT was in fourth place. Um, so oh. this, this is uh, quite problematic, but our students and the people I work with, they're just like, once you explain that this, this, well, I usually withhold information and withhold judgment. And I just say, what do you think? And the guys are like, that's not fair, is it? 
And I'm like, yeah, so mm. what do you propose? Could you come up with a business model? Like if it's the marketing course I'm teaching, I'm like, could you come up with a business model or could you choose one of the top 30 Jap Japanese companies and make a recommendation and then do a presentation on like how they can improve the gender balance in their company? And the students come up with pretty, pretty diverse and innovative uh, ways to combat the, the problem. Even... Um, we also have to do, uh, it's called academic, academic office. It's basically interviewing um, high school students to come into our department. And uh, one day I was with my colleague and we were interviewing this high school student. And we said, okay, so we'd gone through the past, his present and the future. And then we had put it into the abstract future and said, you know, um, if you come to our department, like what way would your research take you? And he immediately said, I would build an app um, to improve um, Hoikuen, which is um, its childcare support for working mothers, and then come, come up with some act actual business model to change the way that the salary operates in Japan. And my colleague and I are our jaws dropped going wow we want you please come <laughs> to our department we need we need people like you that kind of progressive forward thinking so um and it's not just my department i am on uh three or four different committees so i meet people across the unit the universe across the university and um many people are very progressive um not everyone but many yeah, in your book, you it's actually quite refreshing how you detail uh, multiple instances where there was a problem and people just looked at it like a problem that they could fix. You know, yeah. um, you, you talk about how there was a, a problem with the female lounge and they got a female architect to, re, to redesign it. There was another problem that you mentioned where there was uh, a social event where women were kind of put in a in not a good position uh, very in terms awkward of sexism yeah and how yeah. the university uh took care of it right away like you know no no questions yes um, um, can you talk a little bit about that yeah um there is the gender balance promotional committee um and this committee doesn't have a budget and we don't actually meet um well not at the moment because of corona usually we meet maybe once or twice a year and it's um trying to help the, the female students, especially the first year students, to meet with the second, third year, their senpais, their mentors, and to promote friendship, you know, because women need support when they're in this kind of minority context. Also, as, as one, one of my female colleagues said, and she is one of the big people in women in engineering, she, she announced um, last year during the welcome party for the first year students sometimes you know when you are a minority you need to switch off and you want to have a break so um this safe room for women was built and there had been like a women only space but it was like partitioned and it was noisy and like it was just yeah not very nice whereas um the one that was created by the architect it has um secure doors like double 
double locked doors <laughs> um, and um, it has changing rooms for women, for the female students, which, you know, sometimes women need to change more often than men. Um, there's uh, running water, there are hair dryers, there are like places to eat, there are sofas if you need to lie down and rest. So um, yeah, this was like proposed and it went through straight away. So although there is no formal budget, anytime this this committee approaches the the executive committee going, okay, we have a problem here, we would like to solve it. And they've never been refused. We have never been refused to date. So um, it's, it's very, very progressive. There are other instances that I'm not at liberty to talk about uh, in so far as like there's um, privacy um, laws, but our, our entire uh, university is very progressive when it comes to women and women's affairs. Yeah, it seems that, the, you know, that most organizations are, are moving in the right direction. Steps are being taken. You know, progress is, is happening, maybe not as fast as people would like, but there's definitely a general awareness, especially with, I would say, younger people. Yes. Um, you know, the, the, I teach at university too, and it seems like the, you know, the boys, I should say men, um, they are, they're quite aware of, of these issues that you bring up. Mm. Our university is big on the sustainable development goals. So uh, we're, our brief is to try and bring them into our teaching. So in one of my courses, again, the marketing course, we do, we do go into the SDGs and also in another course with first year students, we talk a lot about the sustainable development goals. And last year in the, the, the two courses, I was like, Japan is number 11. We talked about the millennial goals and like how Japan did in them and how Japan is performing in the SDGs. And Japan um, last year was at number 11. And I asked, why isn't Japan number one? And they all went, all right, okay. I'm like, okay, group work, discussion, come back to me on it. You have five, 10 minutes to have a chat and think about why isn't Japan number one? And they, they came back going, oh yeah, um, yeah there's a, there are orphanages in Japan and there are poor people in Japan and there's homelessness in Japan. And I'm like, but yeah, they're kind of present in other countries. There's a very, very good reason why Japan is only number 11. And mm. then I show them the gender rank and Japan, I think it was 121 one or 122 I can't remember it went up one year and down another um, and I'm like this is why Japan is number 11 and they're like oh that's not right is it sensei and I'm like no that's not right so let's get to work imagine you're in charge of a company what would you do or like focus target a company and how what recommendations would you bring in and as I say the, the male students they're just like really gung-ho going yeah like they have mothers sisters um they've been around women you know um so and they work with people in part-time jobs with other with women so they they're well aware that women are equal and, and this this level of discrimination they one guy was like 
telling me that it's a throwback to the 20th century and I'm like it is let's move on to the 21st yeah. century <laughs> and like these are kids who were born in the 21st century <laughs> so right. yeah it's it's really well, you're cool. definitely you're definitely raising awareness that's for sure um yeah sorry my mission is not to be strident my mission is to help people think well the book definitely does that you write about some good examples in your chapter. I really enjoyed reading it and I encourage others to read it. And I'd like to thank you for your time. It's been really nice talking to you today. Thank you so much, Todd. I really appreciate it. That was Eukarya Donnery from the Shonan Institute of Technology. In the final interview, we talked with Wendy Goff, an associate professor at Bunkyo Gakuen University in Tokyo. In the book, she details her long journey from being an assistant language teacher at local schools to a prominent faculty member at a university. Wendy Goff, welcome to Lost in Citations. Hi, how's it going, Todd? Uh, it's going good. Can you talk a little bit about your chapter and what influenced you to write it? Well, my chapter, I guess, is um, the single woman's experience. And... Um, when Diane and Melody first asked me to write a chapter, I think um, they were just trying to gather women with lots of various experiences. And um, I wasn't sure if I wanted to participate at first because they seemed to want me to talk quite a bit about my personal life. And I don't usually talk about my personal life. Um, but then I kind of thought, well, why not? It's not, nothing is actually a secret. And it's nothing bad in my life. So why not give it a shot? Yeah, it's very interesting because you do get very personal. You give, uh, you know, a detailed account almost of your time in Japan and coming here and how your life changed. Um, when you were writing about that, did you have a lot of uh, second guessing or doubt? Like, because when you write about something that's very personal like that, you, you have time to think about it before you submit it to the editor. What was that process like for you? Well, all along, you know, up until the final proofs, I was still debating whether or not I even wanted my chapter in the book because Diane had asked me to kind of write this personal narrative. But, you know, at, at the beginning, I also expressed a little bit of concern about writing my personal life and they were just they just all said you know write whatever you feel comfortable with and I thought that was really good but um you know like I said I think people only know me as Wendy from Jelt or something like that and so I kind of thought maybe that would let people know more that I'm also a person yeah now in the book you talk about how you came here uh, with a partner, um, and that you had different career paths, and then you kind of had mm -hmm. to forge your own way. Mm -hmm. And often when people kind of move up in their career, they have a support network. But in your case, it was quite different because you had to pull away and kind of go on your own, find your own support network. But it worked out for you in the end, but it sounds like it was quite an arduous process at first. Can you talk a little bit about that? Well, I, I think the part that was arduous was just kind of having a big life shakeup in a foreign country. But, um, you know, I met some people through JALT that 
kind of became mentors for me. Um, they, they invited me to their Friday night happy hours and they became a friend network and they did things like helping me polish my resume or introducing me to other people or things like that. So I really don't think it was arduous from that respect because there were people that I could get advice from and that could help me. Mm -hmm. So you, you came over as a jet? Yes. Okay. So <laughs> for those listening, that stands for the Japanese exchange teaching program. Is something that what it's like called? that, something like that. Okay, yeah. and so you were an assistant language teacher at like a high school or elementary school? I was uh, what they called a semi-regular. So I worked in a regional education office in Gifu, and I went to junior high schools in the towns and villages all around. Oh, so yeah, the hop around routine. I was the hop around routine. Yeah, that's kind of the best routine, though. I, I, have, I used to have a routine like that, and I like to go into a different place every day. Well, you know, I think doing that in a foreign country where you don't speak the language, it really teaches you to be flexible and, you know, not to worry about things because my boss he just kind of thought he was like super cool because he spoke English, but he wasn't very good about helping me figure out where I had to go each day. And so especially the first year, I would often end up at the wrong school or I would miss the bus to wherever I needed to go or something like that because I wasn't given clear instructions about where to go. Yeah. And I just kind of, you know, you got to learn to just laugh at silly things like that when it happens. Um, but it also helps you learn the language fast. <laughs> <laughs> that is definitely true. Although you have a good attitude about it. Uh, it. When I was in a similar situation, I found it so stressful, actually, if you did wander off in the wrong direction by mistake. Because, mm -hmm. you know, in Japan, uh, schedules are very important. Being on time is very important. And so if you don't think you can get to the classroom on time, mm -hmm. that's really stressful. At least it used to really stress me out. Um, you know, going back, but you, you progressed. So I'd like to talk a little bit about your progression. So you come over and you're basically kind of like the assistant teacher, but then from that point, you move on, you get a master's degree, you get a PhD, and now you are tenured faculty, if I'm not mistaken. Um, I'm tenure track. So in about two years, I'll have tenure. Oh, wow. So that, that's quite a journey. Mm. Um, and you went to, uh, graduate school in the States? Where did you yeah, go? Yeah, so in the early 2000s, there were not very many distance programs yet. And Japanese universities were still not very open to hiring people that had distance degrees. So I went back and I uh, went to Colorado State for my master's in TEFL TESOL. And then you came back to Japan for a while? Yeah, then I came back to Japan and I lived in Hiroshima and I worked for David English House which was a very well-known language school. But David contracted me out to Hiroshima Daigaku. And so I got university experience when I was doing that. Okay, so that so you went to Hiroshima University and then that started your journey and you realized that you wanted to uh, become a professor? Well, that was why I went back to graduate schools because I knew that being an ALT or like a, language school teacher wasn't really a career type of job. 
Mm-hmm. And so I, I knew if I wanted to stay in Japan or if I wanted to go back to the States permanently, I needed a master's degree at least. Uh, and where did you get your, your PhD? Um, I, got, I did my doctorate at Nova Southeastern University in Florida. And, and what is your study of interest? I, I, my uh, major was curriculum and teaching, but my research focus was on this project that my colleague and I developed for our students. Uh, they were doing volunteer interpreting for international luxury line passengers at the local port. And so I researched how that helped my students learn fluency and intercultural communication skills. Okay. And, and these days, now that you have, you know, completed the major hurdle, you have the PhD, you should have swaths of free time. Um, (laughs) What interests you now in in academia? Well, when you become tenured or tenure track, you actually have less free time because you have more responsibilities. Oh no, that's a secret. (laughs) You're not supposed to tell people that. (laughs) We don't want to discourage people. Um, Well, I'm, before I started my doctorate, my primary research focus was always on teaching writing and writing curriculum. And so now at my current job, I am the writing skills coordinator. And so I have an opportunity to research about writing and developing writing curriculum again. So I'm working with a group of professors at my school to develop an academic English curriculum for our graduate school. And my focus is the writing classes. Do you find that the being online makes it easier to teach writing or are the students more engaged in writing than let's say if they're in a classroom setting? Actually, I gave a lecture on that last week and I'll probably be writing a paper on it. Um, I feel like the students are more engaged in writing um, because we're doing activities in text that used to be done just like it's speaking in class. But the students, like, you know, what I would find when I would have students do collaboration activities in class, I would ask them to make notes. And I would say they could make notes in English or Japanese, but they often didn't. They just talked to each other. And then when it came time to go home and do their homework or whatever, they would forget what they talked about. But now we're doing those same activities, but it's all through text chat in the learning management system. So the students have access to what they discussed with their group members anytime they want. Mm -hmm. And I find that they seem to be very engaged in the writing class and they seem to be very engaged in the activities that they do with partners or with groups. Oh, that's interesting. So, oh no, go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, so like this semester, instead of, writing journals I wanted the students to actually like kind of share ideas more in a similar format so they're doing a show and tell every week and they they upload a photo of the weekly topic and then they have to explain it and then they have to reply to several classmates and it's really creating a nice dialogue among the students and they're getting a lot of good writing practice that's completely autonomous because they can upload pictures of whatever they want and say whatever they want about it. Oh, that's nice. So it's kind of a, uh, you know, I would say ebb and flow type thing where they, mm-hmm. they write something and then they get a response and almost like a conversation. Yeah. But all through text. Oh, that's great. That reminds yeah. me of one of my favorite books, the color purple, which is about just a series of letters that are written, mm-hmm. for, I think two sisters and it's just a, a great book. Mm-hmm. So 
uh, what what software tools are you using? I hear that you're quite the techie. So do you have some tools that you can recommend? Actually, um, my university requires us to use Teams or Moodle. And so I'm just using Teams, but I'm not bringing in any special applications or anything into this online situation because it's such a big learning curve for the students already to get used to working online. And many of my students are not joining class on a computer. They're using a tablet or some kind of smartphone. And I think it's just really difficult to make sure every student knows how to use these different applications on so many different kinds of devices. And so I think that, especially for writing classes, keeping it simple is better. And through Teams, we have so so many tools, right? We've got Word, we've got PowerPoint, we can make channels so the students can like have their personal channels, but also have like group channels. They, they can do video inside all of that. So I think that I don't really need to have a lot of extra things. Mm-hmm. That's great. Um, as we close, would you like to share your, your final thoughts about the book? Like overall, um, what was it like being in a group of so many writers and, and how did you feel about it once it came out? Well, it's interesting because some of the other contributors are people I know and some are people I don't know. And so especially the people I don't know, it was kind of interesting to see what their trajectory was like in Japan or what their perspective was. And it's really nice to see a group of women come together and put something like this out. And hopefully it will kind of help people see like the diversity among the women in our community but also it will help people see a positive image of what women are doing and women who feel positive about their situations. Well, that's wonderful. Well, thank you for your time and uh, good luck with everything in the future. Thank you. And that concludes our interviews for this episode. We would like to thank all the participants for making this podcast possible. That is it for this week. Thanks for listening, and remember, you can hear more podcasts and get more information about the interviews by visiting lostincitations.com.